The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. We waited at court for child services to, to turn up uh, and quite literally rip the baby away from, from Frida, who, despite me doing my best to explain to her that the baby will be safe and, you know, hopefully she'll be reunited in the next few days, it must have been just pure terror of not knowing what was going to happen to her baby. Welcome listeners to another episode of The Hearing Podcast. It's Yasmin here and it's great to have your company. My next guest is Fiona Rutherford and Fiona is the CEO of Justice. Now Justice are a cross-party law reform and human rights organisation based in the UK. And we talked about what's Justice's purpose. Um, We talked about the recent landmark report that they've published. Um, the recommendations, the findings of that report, but we also really got behind what motivates Fiona, what drives her, what is her definition of justice, how does that inform her leadership at justice, what legacy does she hope to leave at justice as well. The Hearing. Fiona Rutherford, welcome to The Hearing Podcast. It's great to have your company. How are you today? I'm very well, Yasmin. I'm pleasure to be here. Really delighted to have you. So, Fiona, you are the CEO of Justice. So my first question to you before we get into your background and how you came to be the CEO is, what exactly is Justice for our listeners? So Justice is a a law reform uh, and human rights charity, and uh, we work to build a fair, accessible justice system that respects the rights of all. Pretty uh, straightforward, um, but a a huge scope um, as part of that purpose. Um, uh, And what we do is we research uh, and gather together. We distill insights from a a wide range of experts uh, to find realistic solutions to the most urgent legal uh, issues of the day. Uh, all our work is based on evidence, it's based on expertise, um, with a real focus on practical uh, solutions. Uh, and then what we do is we advise policymakers, judges, civil servants, others, uh, on how to, you know, on how they can make different decisions or better decisions uh, to ensure that we have a, um, a, an improved justice system. Uh, and as I say, we span the whole system from housing disputes to criminal justice to immigration, family law, many of the aspects which touch the lives of people across the country. Um, And just to, I suppose, end by saying that we uh, are not a new charity. We've been around for about 65 years uh, and have a a good history of of achievements and the way in which we've transformed the legal landscape for the better. For example, parliamentary ombudsman um, system was was recommended by justice the cps the crown prosecution service uh, was a recommendation from from justice including the criminal cases review commission and um and a, a host of other uh, examples uh, too um so yeah we, we um uh, we have a huge span uh, we have a deep expertise uh, and uh, we are um uh, uh, focused strongly on on trying to make the lives of, of the citizens of the uk better yeah. And, and how long have you been CEO then, Fiona? So I joined um, in February of 22. So I'm coming up for my two year anniversary. Yeah. And a little bit of background around about you. You were a barrister, weren't yeah. you? Yes. Uh, and what is your journey then? What, what's your journey before you became the CEO? So I knew I wanted to be a barrister, I suppose, back at school um, after I failed to do all the right qualifications. Um, 
to become a doctor. Uh, so uh, and thought I, I might make a, a good a hash of, of, of being a lawyer. Um, uh, I did that. I loved every second of being a, a barrister in chambers. I was a criminal practitioner uh, doing all sorts of cases, but perhaps towards the, the end of the eight years, more in the sort of murder, um, homicide and fraud sort of area. Um, uh, and But I sort of got to the point where I wasn't sure I wanted to be a judge and I wasn't sure I was uh, going to be able to be a silk, a, a KC or QC as it was then. Um, and But I, I kind of knew I wanted to do something more. Um, I, I didn't know how to articulate that or really what it, what that meant at the time. Um, so I, I joined the Crown Prosecution Service as an advocate, but quickly got involved in and learning about leadership and about strategy and politics. And from there, uh, moved to HMCTS, uh, had a huge learning curve. Um, uh, an example of that might be in the first three weeks, I was asked to deputise for the chief executive officer um, uh, for a meeting with the Lord Chancellor, who was Michael Gove at the time. I'd never met a minister before in my life. Um, and um, I was about three rungs below the chief exec. Um, but because I was a criminal practitioner and because the meeting was on the criminal justice system, um, I was felt best to, to, to be the person leading that meeting with, with, uh, with Michael Gove. So, yeah, definitely a massive learning curve. Um, and then MOJ policy um, was, the, was the next step for me. Um, and again, really helped to deepen my understanding of the policymaking, the lawmaking uh, side of things um, and really led, I think, to me taking on this job, um, the job that I have now. Yeah, that's quite encouraging for our listeners who are perhaps studying law and don't necessarily want to go down the barrister solicitor route. There are more options available to you. So that's that's really encouraging to hear. It's really interesting background. And, you know, what? how do you define justice? I mean, how do you believe it's most effectively administered? Justice, um, for me, is embodies the principle of fairness, um, which has been a real sort of thread personally for me, and I know for many of the people that I work with, I think it often encompasses the idea of treating individuals or groups equitably, um, impartially, um, based on ethical standards or, or laws or societal norms. So I think that's 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 what justice means for me. I think in terms of the effective administration of it, it requires some of this is pretty obvious. It requires a legal system that's fair, that's impartial. Um, transparent, uh, accessible to, to, to all individuals. Um, and it involves having laws that are, are clear, consistently applied, a judiciary that's independent, um, a fair and unbiased enforcement of the laws, due process, equal treatment, um, regardless of background, and, and the mechanisms in, in which you can address grievances um, or resolve disputes in a, in a timely way. Um, I don't know, I, I would say, I think I, I would add and maybe come back to this. Um, it, it also requires a society, I think, to place value in it uh, in order for it to be most effective. Yeah. And, and I want to get on to the landmark report, which came out in September 23. But before we get there, this probably leads to that question is, given your definition of justice, what, what do you perceive are the biggest challenges facing the justice system today? Well, you're not going to be surprised to hear that my number one will be the erosion of the rule of law, um, uh, which is, is one of the reasons why we uh, we put together the, the rule of 
law report that you've just referred to. Um, and that, that came about, of, you know, the last year or two, finding ourselves becoming more and more troubled by what we were seeing um, in legislation and in, in, in sort of policy more, more generally. Um, we'd had a few debates where we got some experts in to, to, to think about the rule of law from a, a number of different perspectives. Uh, and then, as I said, we, we, we did a sort of a stand back approach, which is what led to the report. So I'd say that's probably for me, uh, definitely uh, up there um, in terms of one of the biggest challenges. Um, I think, and I touched on this a minute ago, I think the, the lack of public understanding of the value of the justice system, um, I think is, is an inherent issue and will continue to be a really big problem for the justice system, um, both from a funding perspective, but also for, I think, fundamentally people understanding um, the role it plays in society uh, and it feeds back I think to how much people understand and value the rule of law and uh, and and therefore might what might feel themselves uh, um, a degree of protection towards it in a way that I just don't think um, uh, exists at the moment and then I I suppose modernization uh, and the potential for a lost opportunity you know we've got a pre-Victorian uh, justice system for an AI age um, I suppose and you know, systems designed around judges and, and lawyers, we've got the opportunity to make sure that the system works for people as we modernise, um, to ensure that we have people-centred focus, um, to ensure that we've got the data that we need to be able to make the, the right decisions. Um, and I, I, I worry that some of that, you know, loss of value or, or um, lack of understanding or, or ability to to understand the value of justice will mean that we lose the opportunity to modernize in the most effective way yeah and i mean most of our listeners are lawyers in the legal profession but for the lay person listening i think these terms rule of law are banded about but pe- people probably don't really understand what does that mean what, what is your understanding how would you explain it to a lay person so in, in really simple terms what the rule of law is and why it's so important the rule of law is, um, for me, about um, being all people being treated equally uh, and having the same access to the, the justice system, regardless of your of your background or wealth. Um, and uh, that includes individuals all the way through to the government. So nobody sits outside um, of the of the system. No one should be treated differently. Um, and certainty um, and and access more generally is is part of that. The ability to be able to to access the system is part of that. But I think fundamentally, it's about um, consistent treatment um, across the board in terms of applying law. Yeah, and and we've got a, a global audience actually, not just based in the UK. But do you see your concern about the rule of law being eroded? Do you see this uh, not just in the UK, but you see this elsewhere as well in in other countries? Yeah, I mean, it's just. This is remit just UK based. It's not looking globally, is it? it, it we are UK based, absolutely, but we're also the, the the UK branch for the International Commission of Jurists. So we do have a, a link into the rest of the world. We also, I mean, we cite uh, the World Justice Report, for example, the World Justice Project uh, report, uh, which which gives an index on the rule of law as part of the um, the report that we recently uh, launched, and 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 that does a comparator against set criteria and has been doing it for a number of years now. 
um, which ends in an index of countries and, and basically where you where you're ranked. Um, and the UK has been consistently going down the rankings, um, which in itself is troubling. But it's it's fair to say that there are others um, that are perhaps surprising. Um, uh, across the globe that you wouldn't expect to be see, seeing going down the, the, the rankings or, or perhaps less surprising. I mean, countries like Hungary um, and Turkey have, have, have seen a, uh, a drop in their, uh, in their rankings. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a problem, not just, um, as you say, on a, on a sort of a global scale, but equally the impact globally on our reputation internationally by virtue of what we are doing internally. Um, it, with regards to eroding the, the rule of law. Um, and if we're not worried about some of the other things like access to justice and, uh, and all the rest of it, on an economic case alone, on an uh, international reputation alone, those, those things should be sufficient to, to warrant concern, uh, enough concern within government across other decision makers to really think carefully before they uh, continue down the, the, the route that it feels that we're, we're very much uh, firmly on. Yeah. And and let's get into that landmark report. Why why did you feel this report needed to be uh compiled? I mean, I guess you've given some of the reasons your concerns, but but also what were some of those findings and recommendations to give our audience uh, our listeners a, a bit of a flavor about the report, its purpose and some recommendations and findings. Yeah, I mean as as I say we were spending a lot more time um over the over the last couple of years, uh, working on legislation because there has been a, a, a real sort of growth industry um, of uh, justice related legislation, um, and so justice was finding itself working more and more on on these um, on these bills, um, and we became more and more concerned that if you just stood back a little bit, um, there we didn't really have a, an understanding or, or, or didn't feel there had been a proper analysis. Uh, of the over overarching impact um, on the rule of law and, and indeed rights, uh, our rights. Um, and so that was, I think, our driver behind wanting to, to do that analysis. Um, and so we looked at a, a range of different pieces of uh, legislation to, to try and understand that cumulative impact. So we looked at the Public uh, Order Act, we looked at the Illegal Migration Act, the Real Act, the Elections Act. I mean, there was a, a range of legislation over the last couple of years. Um, each one viewed in isolation doesn't amount to wholesale negation of the of the rule of law, but taken together, we found that it, it created a picture suggesting that uh, that the rule of law has been incrementally undermined on multiple fronts. What we've said in the report is that it's not a the rule of law isn't an idealistic or it's a or an abstract concept. It has real consequences. Um, for the general public. And it's the notion that all are equal before the law, as I said earlier, both individuals and the state that um, I, I think is is not as well understood as it as it as it should be. And that includes within the sort of across legislators as much as it does within the executive. Um, and the report finds that we've we, we believe we're reaching a, a tipping point. Um, and uh, we've been determined to try and highlight a route back um, and as I said earlier, we try to look for practical solutions to to the problems that we find. So um, we've offered twenty recommendations as, as as part of that report. Um, perhaps a range of of recommendations, some of which are less controversial, perhaps less hard to implement, um, which would 
be, for example, for the executive to stop attacking, verbally attacking the legal profession and the judiciary, uh, whether it's in parliament or, or in, in other places, um, all the way through um, to repealing legislation such as the Public Order Act 2023, um, such as the Illegal Migration Act, and then lots of other recommendations in between, particularly around how the role of parliament in scrutinising, the role of understanding the impact of legislation before you introduce it, um, the, the, the um, need to ensure for certainty, so don't give what we describe as Henry VIII powers, these sweeping powers to, uh, to, to the executive that then is able to be interpreted and changed in secondary legislation, which of course is much easier uh, to do and much less scrutinised in itself uh, as part of the process of creating secondary legislation. So it's, it's, a really, it's a really big report. For those people that don't have the opportunity to read um, all of the chapters, it has a great executive summary and, it, and we summarise all of the recommendations at the end as well. Uh, and of course, you can dive into the, the, the chapters that you're, you're particularly interested in. But I think this is going to be the start of it, Yasmin. I think that um, you know, we're, we're, we've got other work planned um, over the next 12 months to build on this, including a law for lawmakers uh, update. We, we, we produced a guide for the legislators a few years ago. Um, there's going to be an opportunity with new, new members of parliament, inevitably, um, with the coming election. There's an opportunity to, to try and induct those legislators who are perhaps less familiar with lawmaking um, with, the, with the sort of fundamentals that are, are set out in that law for lawmakers. So we're, we're going to update that and, and provide training if needed, which I suspect it might be. Um, and then we've got some other examples. Yeah, lots of work to do. Yeah. The hearing. On the outside, you're a lawyer, calm and cool, but inside there's a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game. You prepare hour after hour, day after day, in the pursuit of excellence, relying on superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. That's the advantage we give you. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. So the report was out in September, but I'm really interested in what's the process now? So who's looking at the report? I'm, I'm assuming the recommendations are just guidance. What What's the process after this report has been completed? Well, the, the, the Law for Lawmakers uh, guide is, is, is part of delivering those recommendations, the, the, the um, guide I just, I've just mentioned. But um, we obviously share it with the the obvious decision makers. So it's it's shared with ministers who we meet with relatively frequently. Um, it's shared with shadow uh, ministers uh, who we also meet with um, relatively frequently. Uh, and of course, it's shared with uh, officials and a range of other public bodies who um, we find opportunities, whether it's looking at specific pieces of work that they're, they're looking at um, to ensure that they're improving uh, their own understanding of the impact of legislation. So we might do it in a sort of uh, case by case basis, um, 
uh, and equally when we're um, as we know uh, policies are being thought about we will um, as as the months go by we will uh, hopefully build um, more of an understanding whether it's uh, in the civil service or whether it's um, in in parliament of the sorts of things that you really need to think about when you're when you're creating policy or creating legislation. Um, so again, another piece of work that's linked to this will be um, that we're considering doing is, is looking at the public sector equality duty, which is uh, a key part of lawmaking, um, which is where the public should be reassured that the government are thinking about the sorts of impacts that the legislation is going to have on, on equality. Um, and, and that's an area that perhaps isn't always given the sort of attention it should be when when legislation is being considered and indeed put through Parliament. So that's a that's another example of where we'll try to find practical routes, um, as you say, to put this sort of some to some extent guidance, uh, to some extent um, sort of more solid recommendations into into play. Great, thank you. So I, I just want to ask probably more of a personal question in that what motivates you, what makes you tick. Um, can you think of a, a particular case or situation that really deeply impacted your perspective on justice, maybe when you were a barrister or um, in your experience? Yeah, I, I, I definitely can. And it's it's easy to, to think about it because of the uh, introduction or since the introduction of the Rwanda bill uh, in December. Um, and it's a case of a, a woman called Farida Mohammed. It was a quasi-criminal immigration case um, in that it was a, an immigration-related offence that was prosecuted in the, in the Crown Court. Um, and the legislation setting out the offence was repealed after conviction and sentence appeal was heard at the Court of Appeal, no doubt as a result of the judgment of the, of the concern the court had uh, of the case in question. So I've sort of given away the, the ending of, of what happens. But um, just to tell you a little bit more about Farida, she was a, a young woman who was fleeing Somali, Somalia where she had been raped and tortured. She'd just about sufficient funds to pay for an airfare to the UK and she arrived in the country heavily pregnant. Um, she, uh, she applied for asylum um, but was arrested under this now defunct um, offence and she was prosecuted. Her first trial, um, I wasn't actually instructed in by them, but she, it was vacated because she was she'd literally given birth um, was in labour. It was around that time that the trial was set. But her second trial was fixed quite surprisingly, actually, only four months later. So um, Farida came to court on the first day with her four-month-old baby. Um, arrangements had to be made for regular breaks so that she could feed her baby while she was in court. She had to hand her baby over uh, to the only people who were available, which happened to be the immigration officers, who, of course, were the people responsible for prosecuting her. She didn't speak any English, and the interpreter was picked up a number of times during the trial by me or by the judge even, um, because he, 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 there was just periods of silence where he clearly wasn't doing the interpreting. And every day before and after court, um, the paralegal I was working with uh, and I would pick her up um, from her hostel with her two bin bags of um, her sole possessions in the world and, of course, her baby and had to get her to and then from from court at the end of the day. We didn't know when we dropped her back off at the hostel whether there was going to be a bed for her um, or her baby. You know, it was it's, it was such a precarious position she's in. Um and when the jury convicted her, the judge decided to immediately imprison her to four months. And due to the fact that there is no process in place for someone imprisoned at court with a baby to travel together, um, and indeed no process when on a Friday, 
which it was, it was a Friday that she got um, convicted and, and sentenced. There's no process for anyone to give an immediate consideration or immediate decision as to whether a mother can bring her baby into prison with with her um, and couldn't be confirmed until Monday. We, we waited at court for child services to, to turn up uh, and quite literally ripped the baby away from, from Frida, who despite me doing my best to explain to her that the baby will be safe and, you know, hopefully she'll be reunited, reunited with, with the baby in, in the next few days. Um, I'm pretty sure, you know, understandably Farida was, was really struggling to understand what was going on. Um, and this is the only time I've ever had to compose myself before the court and, and being close to tears when making submissions. Um, you know, I'm generally able to really sort of separate the, the two out. But and it was also before I'd had children of my own and knowing what I do now know um, my empathy for Farida and the importance of, I think, telling the sort of story that I'm telling now and her terror. It must have been just pure terror of not knowing what was going to happen to her baby, not to mention the practicalities um, with, you know, how she coped with how she was going to still breastfeed her baby. Uh, um, it, it, I, for me, I just think it, it inherently um, provoked the sort of deep-seated belief that this was not a, um, a fair or humane uh, situation. And I suppose both those things, fairness or unfairness and treating humans like humans is what's really sort of motivated, motivated me throughout my career. And it's what, you know, it's what, it's what led to the role that I do now. But that's the case, which, which when I, if I ever need to think about something not going well in the system, of course, there are lots of examples, but, or if I need, if I'm having a, a bad day, it's a good example of when I think back and go, well, my life is definitely not bad. And, um, uh, and um, we need to make things better. Gosh, just you telling me that I've got a chill down my spine. I'm a mother as well, and and that's a heartbreaking story. And I can see even when you're telling it, you're full of emotion. You're going right back to those emotions when it was happening at the time. I think anyone listening to that will will have a lot of empathy with that. And it must be very difficult to compose yourself in this situation. This is about human beings and how vulnerable they are. What's happened to, is it Farida? What, what's happened to her now? Do you know? Do you get to start these cases? or We appealed sentence and conviction. The sentence was overturned quite quickly. I, um, The court um, heard the, the conviction center, uh, the conviction appeal separately. It's, it's interestingly, I was prosecuted. Um, the, the, the person representing the Crown was Alex Chalk, the, the now Lord Chancellor. Um, uh, and... Um, it was joined together with another case with similar facts and, and heard by the, um, I think, the president of the Queen's Division, as it uh, as it was then, uh, because I, it, they knew they were looking at a point of law, which, as I say, I think is, is at least partially, if not wholly, what led to the to the offence being um, being repealed. Uh, but in terms of Farida herself, she was never brought to court either on the sentence hearing. Um, the sentence appeal for the sentence appeal decision, or indeed for the for the um, the appeal c- against conviction. So I never saw her again after she left the the Crown Court. So I, I have no idea, uh, but I do think about her. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, and I, I've just finished watching something on iPlayer called Time. Yeah, same. Yes, um, the first series with Sean Bean. The second one was about women in prisons and the reasons they're in there, and it just reminded me of you know some women probably shouldn't be in prison and they feature a story don't they of a, of a, a young woman who 
actually gives birth in the prison and, and all the issues surrounding that. And I urge people to, I mean, it's, I have, I've cried so much watching that, but it, I think it's a really important piece of work um, for people to talk about these issues and understand what is going on in prison. So that's what I thought of when you told that story as well. So, yeah. I think both of those series are brilliant and I would also highly um, endorse others watching them. Yeah, lots of tissues at the ready. Um, Absolutely. I'm a bit of a softie anyway, but um, I cry at John Lewis adverts. So they... <laughs> <laughs> um, Fiona, I wanted to also ask you, you know, this is obviously, a, you know, this deeply moves you, this work. I, I can see that just in the way you're talking to me and, and, and you know, I can see you on screen. That My listeners don't have the benefit of seeing you in person, but I can see this is deeply uh, affects you and you care passionately about this what what else motivates you to work in this field and and how does that background really inform your leadership at justice um i think that um i i, I mean stepping back away from sort of the those sort of fair those, those sort of really foundational um principles that sort of um uh make me you know turn up at work every day get out of bed in the morning all that kind of thing I I really enjoy the ability to be able to um, think at system level but also think about what the impact on uh, on a on, on an individual is going to be and what justice does I think really well is is try to understand that sort of bottom up that sort of um, perspective of, of the individual and what the problem is that they are seeing and feeling and, and going through um, and then being able to have the ability to to sort of look from a top-down perspective and, and figure out how at system level or policy level things can be improved uh, and I suppose this job and, and in fairness my, my, my last job at the MOJ as the Director uh, of Access to Justice Policy both were where I you know really started to um, started to build and hone those skills um so i think i think that's one thing i think the other thing is i really enjoy learning um and being in a job where i continually not just making a difference which is really important but also learning um and uh yeah that's definitely true of this job too great and and last question because we're coming up to time um as ceo what kind of legacy do you hope to to leave at, at justice so, um, legacy. I, I, looking inwards, I'd like justice to continue to be the uh, fabulous place. I would say to work with with the great purpose as it as it as it does today. Um, looking outwards, I'd like justice to be a trusted provider of information. So, if you hear or read something from justice, you know that it's based in evidence with no political or, or other motivation behind it. Um, and I'd like us to be well known. For uh, for being a, an independent and evidence-led researcher and provider of policy and legal solutions to make the, the system, the legal system, fairer, more accessible and respecting of the rights of all, which is obviously our purpose statement as I've just read it. So I, I think there's there's a lot more to do from where we are, which is a, you know, a, a good position, but there's a lot more we can do and a lot more impact that we can have. And I'm really excited about trying to achieve that over the coming years. Fantastic. I wish you all the best in your role, Fiona, and thank you for being a really interesting, fascinating guest for us on The Hearing. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Yasmin. Pleasure. The Hearing. 
So I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I enjoyed having this conversation with Fiona and please as ever provide your feedback, your comments about this episode. Thank you for listening. The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.